Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Our scripture for today is from Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter, it, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord is Thank you, honey. And thank you, Allison. No, that was my wife, if you're new here. The last one that just read, that's my wife. All right, uh, good morning. Let's see, uh, kiddos, we have Elevate this morning for first and second grade, and then we have EGC for third, fourth, and fifth, uh, where they go back and... Good grief. Uh, so EGC, just a real quick, EGC, this is third, fourth, and fifth grade. Every other week, they go back and they'll, they go through the uh, New City Catechism uh, and ask questions and learn and have a good time. And then the other weeks, they stay in here with us and they are a part of the corporate gathering and they get to participate. Uh, so we don't just send them out every week. And yet, there's an opportunity here at the church for them to build friendships and relationships, to learn more on their level, to not have to sit and listen to me all the time. Uh, where, like you guys have to do, and uh, it's just a, it just works out well for them. And so, that's, just so you know, that's what we do. And the room kind of cleared out a little bit, right? Now you got room to kick back, maybe put your feet up a little bit. And, all right. Um, also, a couple things. Next week, we are having baptism. Uh, we're going to celebrate that. We, we celebrate uh, that twice a year. Um, just because all we have is an inflatable hot tub. So we, we uh, celebrate that twice a year. We're going to be celebrating that next week. If you have questions, we've got, I mean, we've got several people lined up. If you have questions, if you want to know what does baptism mean, what is it, what do, how do I do it? Uh, if I've committed my life to Jesus, what does that look like? What, is, what, is, what does it mean to be baptized? If you want to talk about that, email quickly, uh, and we'll set up a time to grab coffee this week. Uh, I, me or one of the elders, or you can even turn to the person next to you and say, hey, have you been baptized? What does it mean? What, is that, what do we do there? And then go based on their information and set up a meeting, and we'll grab coffee or whatever this week. Um, also, next week is the Super Bowl. And, um, uh, but there's something more important in the world of sports to talk about. And, and it's not Taylor Swift. Uh, listen. I don't know who, I am getting sick and tired of the people complaining about Taylor Swift, and I'm getting sick and tired of the people complaining about the people complaining about Taylor Swift. <laughs> the only person in this world I'm not upset with is Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, so, but 10 days from now, pitchers and catchers report. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The St. Louis sporting event. All right. The Cardinals report to spring training. And I, I, know, I know how much this church is all about sportsing and things like that. So bear with me for a minute, all right? I love baseball. I love baseball. I grew up playing baseball. Grew up a Cardinal fan. Me and my friend Jeff that lived across the street, 
We would play catch every day, and then we'd do ground balls across the street, where it was just out of our reach, where we had to dive like Ozzy, right? Because we were Ozzy. Uh, and uh, that's what we did. We would, there, the games, like, we complain about a few games that are on Apple TV or whatever, but growing up, that we just barely had some games on Channel 11. We had to listen on the Mighty Mox. We had to listen to KMOX radio. And I remember one time listening to Tommy Herr, regular season game. Tommy Herr hit a two-run homer in the bottom of the ninth to walk off for the Cardinals. And we went screaming out into the streets, me and my friend Jeff. Now, this is because it's baseball, right? The constant throughout the years. Ray has been baseball. America's rolled on like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that was good and could be again. It's baseball. How can you not be romantic about baseball? All right, enough movie quotes. So I played, ball, I played baseball in college. I played uh, D2 my freshman year, and then I, my sophomore, junior year, I played for a Division three school, although I, pr I played for... Uh, uh, my coach was an ex-major leaguer, and um, so that was cool to be able to do that. Uh, when you think of a little league kid, right, you put on that glove for the first time, and you walk out there, and you want to make the diving play. You want to be, in my day, it was Ozzie Smith. Or you put that helmet on. You walk up to the plate. Every kid, right, this is, it's two on, two out, two strikes, bottom of the ninth. And you're up, and this pitch is everything. I'm left-handed, so don't get confused by that. Um, right? I mean, it, I, I love baseball. In America in 2022, don't get, caught too, don't get too caught up in the stats because none of these stats had like dates by it. This is the only one I found that actually had dates by it. So I used it. In 2022, there were a little more than 511,000 high school baseball players. 511,000 high school baseball players. Of those 511, about 12% will go on to play baseball in college, um, which comes to about 64,000. Of those 64,000 collegiate baseball players, this is every level of college, junior college up to D1, of, of those 64,000 collegiate athletes, there are 614 players drafted each year to Major League Baseball. Now, some will pick up contracts later on, but that's under 1% of the, 600, of the 64,000 that actually play. Then, of all of the baseball players that sign professional minor league contracts, only about 10% of those on a yearly basis, basis actually make it to the show for at least one game. Teach your kids to study. <laughs> All right. Seriously, though, I, I, I coach my son's team. I love it. I love doing it. And listen, if you're playing Little League ball to hope to make it, I mean, I'm sure that's part of every Little League dream. Once that dies, then the things that they learn are it's more important than sports. They learn how to work hard. They learn how to grow and win and lose. Learn how to play as a team, depend on each other, and all that kind of stuff. But what do we generally tell our kids in situations like this? What's the general, or what did you learn as a kid, right? Uh, you got to work harder. You got to put in the effort. 
You've got to be better than the next guy. You've got to outlast them. You've got to keep pushing. You've got to keep getting better, right? I wonder what you think, what the automatic default is when we hear the verse that we just read. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I wonder if we go toward our default thinking when we hear that passage. Maybe. I got to work harder. Heaven is for the elite. The 1% of the 1%. Anybody? Or like, you keep pushing. Does this, does this passage freak you out a little bit? Does anybody hear this and you're like, okay, what does that mean? I, I, I think it, maybe it should. It, it messes with me a little bit. Now, I think there's a healthy bit of, of messing with us with this passage. A healthy bit of like, okay, all right. I also think there can be an unhealthy measure of, of messing with us. Like if it just controls you. I, I also think there can be an unhealthy presumption to go in. I'm good. This is talking about those other people, those sinners. I'm in. So we're going to address this passage with three questions. What's this passage primarily about? What is the call here? And then what are the destinations? Okay? Is that me? Is that my phone? Nope, it's not me. All right. All right, so let's start with what is the passage primarily about? Um, if we stop and step back a little bit, what we're going to see, especially given the context of, of the, this kind of uh, falling into the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, um, what, we, what we stop and see is I don't think this is primarily about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. I don't think that's the primary point of what Jesus is actually trying to get across here is, is like who's in and who's out. Um, what I think it's about is the call to follow Jesus into the kingdom of heaven. And I think primarily it's about that the path of following Jesus is difficult. It's hard. It's not, it's not easy. It goes against our natural instincts. It goes against our fallen nature, or even from a secular scientist point of view, what some would call the human condition. There is, uh, there's, there's always been quite a bit of discussion uh, when we talk about the creation account, man being created in the image of God. What does that mean? What does it mean for mankind to be created in the image of God, to bear the image of God? And there's a whole lot that goes into that, our ability to reason, uh, various things like that. But I do think one of the things that goes into what makes us different than the animals um, is our ability to obey and then consequently disobey. One of the things that God gives Adam to do, Adam and Eve in the garden, is he gives him a law to obey. The animals, they just do what they do. See the food, eat the food. None of them are examining the moral consequences of, of what they're eating. And we're not, we're not told if God, like, sat down with the animals and said, you know, don't eat each other, except praying mantises, go for it, right? 
Uh, we don't think, we're not told if God like gathered all the dogs together and made a covenant with all the dogs. We know he didn't do it with the cats, right? Now, I'm, I'm saying this because our sinful nature, our natural, our, our, the way we are wired naturally is see the food, eat the food. Our natural inclination is to ask, is, this ple- is not to ask, is this pleasing to God? Our natural inclination is to ask, is this pleasing to me? So to enter the narrow gate, I think, goes against all of our natural proclivities. To give up the pleasures of now for the hope of something beyond the now. The hope of something eternal. To give up the certain and seen for the unseen. This is not our default. And it's difficult. It's hard. It is the willful denial of self to trust and submit to Jesus and not to try to self-justify, not to try to avenge ourselves, but to trust that Jesus is our great defender. To walk in the way of the kingdom of God is hard. In fact, the only way that we enter into the kingdom of God um, is, Paul would say, and this, this is going to come about later, so he's, Jesus is not talking about this yet, but with eyes Looking back on this, we can see this. The only way to walk in the kingdom of God is to walk in resurrection, right? What has to happen before we are raised from the dead? We have to die. That is a necessary, we don't just jump straight to resurrection. So that sinful self has to die. Our our kingdom, the kingdom of me, has to be put to death. And I don't like the death of my own kingdom. I like my own kingdom. And I, I think this is what Jesus is primarily talking about here, that this is difficult. Not only that, but also the promise of God is that people aren't necessarily going to look at you and, as you walk in a way of self-denial and as you walk in obedience to Jesus. They're not going to look at you and think, you're amazing. That's really something. I'm impressed with how you do that. You may face persecution. You may face rejection. All right? Now, hear me on this. Hear me. We're not called to go seek after rejection. Right? You are never called to be a jerk to somebody, and then they go, man, you Christians. Ah, I know, because I'm obeying Jesus. No. No. That, in fact, is religious disobedience. Jesus wasn't rejected because he was a jerk. People of refuge, I would commend to you that one of the most powerful testimonies of the goodness and graciousness of God is to be good and gracious, not to make efforts to be a jerk on either side. Not to, let's just do away with all the mic drop comments. And when we make mic drop comments, because they're so, they can be so satisfying that we then repent. Okay. Um, in fact, psychologists will tell you that uh, on, for, for anybody, right, across the spectrum, um, they will tell you that people who are the most dogmatic about their views are usually the most insecure in their beliefs. So in other words, if you can't tolerate somebody disagreeing, having a different opinion, nuance, you have to win the argument. Chances are good. You're insecure in your belief. 
the most settled in your belief can actually handle people that disagree with you. All right. Now, here again, I don't think the primary purpose of what Jesus is saying in these passages is telling us who's going where or that heaven is only for the elite, okay, um, or for those who work hard, about, or work hard enough. And, and I'm, I'm going to set that over here, and we're going to pick it back up in, in a few minutes. I believe that Jesus, I believe that Jesus is speaking uh, in, a, in a metaphor here. He's giving two options, two pathways, and this is common in Jewish teaching, um, light and dark. We hear those compared quite a bit. Uh, blessed and cursed, we see that. Uh, here, wide and narrow. And I believe, again, that he's telling us the narrow path, the kingdom, of, the, kingdom that lead, the path that leads to life is difficult. So don't be surprised when it is hard to follow Jesus. So what is the calling then of this path that leads to life? We see that the gate is narrow. Let's start with what, the, what this is not. What this path is not. It's not a path toward personal fulfillment. Although, trusting Jesus, knowing that you are loved and forgiven by the God of the universe, I think is fulfilling. Uh, it is not a path to enlightenment, though there is the promise of wisdom. It's not the path to self-actualization or living your truth. It's not the path of independence or self-reliance or personal responsibility, though there are many, many measures of accountability for sure. It's not the path, this is, a, this is a hard one I think for us, it's not the path of achievement for the godly, moral person. Where the most moral, the most godly, the most following the rules is the one that makes it to the major leagues. Though there are certainly morals involved. This is, there is right and wrong. Um, this is a path of following Jesus. This is a path of dependence on Jesus, bowing down, worshiping Jesus. This is not a checklist of beliefs or a list of do's and don'ts that as long as you fall into the right parameters, you're okay. It's a path of trusting and following Jesus. And this way is narrow. There's only one way to enter onto this path. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. To trust and follow him. He is both savior and he is example. He is the entrance and he is as we go, as we walk along the road. He's never savior where he's not example and he's never example where he's not savior. Uh, 17, a little over 17 years ago when we first started Refuge, uh, there was a teaching from Tim Keller that was shedding light on the way that I read the Bible. And it was both incredibly helpful and it messed with me a lot. And this is the concept that he rocked my world with, right? A lot of us, we think in, in binary ways. Uh, there's two ways to live. You can live God's way or you can live man's way. Jesus used, again, the light and the dark, and we can, we can kind of set these up. But what Keller was saying is when you read through the Bible, actually mostly when you read through the Gospels, and primarily when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, what you find is there's actually three ways to live. There's a religious way, there's an irreligious way, and then there's a way of the gospel. There's a way of following Jesus. The irreligious way is obvious, right? 
I don't need a king. I don't need a savior. I'll do what I want. See the food, eat the food. I, I live my best life now. I, I don't need, I don't need, I don't need a, the crutch of Christianity. To which I say, Christianity is not a crutch. That's a woefully overdoing of a crutch. It is a full-out stretcher. Um, but there's also, so in that way, we avoid, avoid our need for Jesus and we reject his lordship, his kingship. But there's also a religious way to avoid Jesus as Savior. And this is actually what Jesus spends most of the time on in the Sermon on the Mount. I follow the rules. Basically, I'm a good person. I have the right, relief. Uh, I have the right beliefs. I hold the right doctrines. I'm not as bad as those people. Fill in the blank on who that is. So, because I am more moral than those people, and because I struggle with the right sins, of course I'm going to heaven. Why wouldn't Jesus love me? <laughs> oh, I was a youth minister for a while. I had a goatee and I played guitar. It's like, of course I'm called by God. <laughs> All right. We would never say that out loud, right? But we're like, as long as I keep my, even though I just did, as long as I keep this world in, in, and I have my sins under control and I've got the reading plans going, I've got all this stuff in place, I mean, Jesus doesn't need to worry about me. He's got time to worry about all those other sinners. Both of those are ways to avoid the need for Jesus. And then there is what we call the gospel, the good news. I know I'm sinful. I know I can't live up to this. I'm humbled greatly by that. I'm not, I have no need to like mask over and say, no, I'm, I'm actually pretty good or compare myself to somebody else. And yet I don't, I don't, it's not like I'm out killing people. We're not going to do the heart thing right now because I am doing that. Um, but I, I know that I'm sinful. I can't fulfill these requirements. I can't be my own savior. And unless there's somebody to step in to defend me or stand up for me, I'm, I'm, I'm done for. What then is my hope? Not only do I need the forgiveness of Jesus, but actually experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus, I need to remind myself of it every day. And experiencing his grace then begins to change not just what I do, but why I do what I do. It informs everything in my life. So let's take like one of the, one of the easy Low-hanging fruit commandments. And just apply this, okay? Love your neighbor. Everybody got that one down? Right? It's cakewalk. Just love our neighbor. That's one of the things we do. Um, so apparently, I have uh, unknowingly convinced Joel Keane to read through the brothers, or to listen to the brothers Karamazov. Uh, so you can ask him in eight months how that's going. Uh, and, uh, but we talked uh, this week. It reminded me of the scene in Brothers Karamazov. I listened to that whole thing. You're going to get more than one Sunday of quotes from Brothers K. Um, and this is, a, this is a conversation between the skeptical uh, atheist brother Ivan uh, and his younger brother Alyosha, who is devout uh, and, and faithful, about how hard it is to love your neighbor. And so Ivan says this. He says, I must make one confession. I can never understand how one can love one's neighbors. It's just one's neighbors, to my mind, that you can't love. We can love people at a distance. To my thinking, Christ-like love for men 
is a miracle impossible on earth. He was God. We're not gods. Then he goes on. Beggars, especially genteel beggars, ought never to show themselves, but should ask for charity through the newspapers. Because one can love one's neighbors in the abstract, or even at a distance, but at close quarters, it's impossible. If it were on stage, in the ballet, where if the beggars came in and they wear silken rags and tattered lace and beg for alms while dancing gracefully, then one might like looking at them, but even then, we shouldn't love them. Later on, Father Zosimo, who's the older elder priest, uh, a woman comes to him and expresses her frustration that she can't love. What am I supposed to do? I can't love like Jesus loved. I'm angry at people. And this is what he tells her. I'm sorry that I can't say anything more, comfortably, uh, more comforting. For active love is a harsh and fearful thing compared with love and dreams. Love and dreams thirsts for immediate action. It's quickly performed. Everyone's watching. Indeed, it will go as far as the giving of one's own life provided it does not take too long and is soon over as on a stage, everyone looking on and praising. Whereas active love, that's labor and perseverance. And for some people, perhaps a whole science. Right? We talk a lot about love and dreams. That's often what we, you know, we just need to love people. That's awesome in the abstract. Right? I would die for Riley. But loving people that you know their bumps and bruises, loving people that drive you crazy, loving people with the same thing over and over again, all the imperfections, having to meet their needs, and then actually having to express your own needs. And you know if you express your own needs, you've got to pay that back. And it's, Loving people is really, really hard, and Jesus commands us to do this. This is walking the kingdom path. And this is just one of the calls of this narrow road of following Jesus who loved perfectly. He is our example. He's laid out before us what we are to do. He has been perfectly obedient to the law in action and in motive. And he gives us the example of how we are to be. However, it's impossible. Would we... Mass confession, right? It's impossible to love someone. It's great. We love people in the abstract. But it's impossible. So what we find is we have to actually be loved by him in order to even begin to love like him. The calling of the path toward life is difficult. It's sacrificial. It goes against our fallen, self-protective nature. And we need to experience supernatural grace and forgiveness to walk this path, the hope of the resurrection. And we need to remember often and practice often this reality every day. But as we said, there's two pathways, right? There's a pathway that leads to life. There's a pathway that leads to destruction. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, Joel did a great job touching on this uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm not sure this is, the, this is the place in Scripture where we deal with the actual nature of hell. Um, but uh, 
But there is, I think what Jesus is hitting on is not actually the nature of hell, but the pathway that we walk toward it. That is the here and now. Uh, and some of, we do that every day. There's a lot of thoughts about hell. Um, I think one thing that's critical to understand here in this passage is that there is the reality of an eternal life of separation. There is, there is that reality. Sometimes in our world, we want to do away with that, except for certain people that we don't like. But we're kind of, we, Jesus gives us, there, there is a reality of the possibility of a life separated from him. Um, I don't know that anybody can say for certain what does hell look like, but we, it's going to be rough, right? Uh, Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And he says, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? And, and Joel gave us a great distinction when we say all things will be made new, that we also need to have that mind, that all things, uh, uh, that, that is, it's not qualified, but Paul is talking about a certain thing that Jesus is all going to redeem. But here, Paul includes everybody, even under the earth. So that means there will be people that bow before God, that, that bow before the throne of Jesus, that this will bring the most amazing sense of relief and joy and hope and awe and praise. That when we bow before Jesus, we will be whole and there could be no greater thing. And there will be those who bow before Jesus in reluctance, in resentment, in anger, and in bitterness. The full realization that there is only one God and it's not me. So when we walk the path of self-worship day after day after day, it will lead to destruction. It will lead to us bowing before God for eternity, somehow, some way, in anger and resentment, and that will be hell. What does it look like to walk along the path that leads to life? I think it starts now. It's not, I trusted Jesus, I get to go to heaven when I die. It is, I follow Jesus now through death into eternity, into the kingdom fully realized. So what does it mean? It means that we bow down before Jesus now in our current life day to day. All right, everybody freeze where you're at. And I'm not talking about the AC, it just kicked on. Capture the thought that you just had. I said, all right, we bow down before Jesus now in our day-to-day -day life. I'm going to assume that that phrase might need some unpacking and some clarity. Is that a safe assumption? Here's, what, here's one thing I'm going to assume. I'm going to assume that some of us heard that and went, amen. Sounds right. It's church words. He said it with conviction. Right? 
Uh, but what does that mean? Huh? You just bow down before Jesus. Okay? Some of us may have heard that, and, we, and we're like, um, okay, all right. So we go right back to what Jesus already covered in the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so he's saying, I got I to gotta do more. I got to be better. I got to be more moral. I got to get my junk together. Got to work harder, just like Pastor said in the beginning of the sermon. Got to work harder. That's not what I said at the beginning of the sermon. Um, what does it look like practically to bow down every day? On a very simple level, this is asking every day, as often as we can, who am I bowing down to? Who, who am I worshiping? And I want to tell you right now, the voices that line up for us to bow down to are plenty. They are plenty. And we need to be aware of what we are doing. Um, they're, they're endless. That we, even that we can confuse with Jesus, with the voice of Jesus. We can bow down to politics. We can bow down to sociological things. We can bow down, to, bow down to social contagion. We can bow down to sexual issues. We can bow down to economical issues. We can bow down to religious ideology and miss Jesus. There are lots of paths. It's wide. Lots of them, including self-righteous religious paths that lead to destruction that are about pride and arrogance. Values that we have at refuge. Know, be, and do, right? This is our triangle. Know, be, and do. If you've taken essentials, this is what we talk about in essentials. Uh, the good news of Jesus is not God said this, so we do this. Okay? This is what happens, this is what happens with the good news of Jesus. This is what Christ has accomplished. This is what he's done. So before I do anything... This changes who I am. I'm now forgiven. I am now a new creation. I have now been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. I've been reconciled with God. I'm a child of the king. Then it changes what we do and why we do it. So the first thing that happens is this changes who I am. So what we look at when we talk about every day bowing down is not just what do I do now, but who am I? If this is true, what does that mean? If I'm loved by God, I don't have to rip on the people that are different from me. I don't have to make myself look better. I'm loved by God. I don't even have to get my junk together. That will change because that junk will be less appealing over time. The daily practice of this, we, we practice the daily presence of Jesus. This involves prayer. This involves reading the Bible, meditating, dwelling, repenting, enjoying, letting the peace of Christ dwell in us richly, all of these things. One great practice that, that we've done here a few times that I'll give you, uh, you can ask Tiffany about it, we have papers on it, we can put it together for you, is, is, it's called a prayer of examine, right? It's a helpful tool where you basically sit down and you have a list of things that you go through. You sit in the presence of God and remind yourself, I'm in the presence of God. And you look at your, the last day or you look at the last week and you go, okay, God, where did I remember that I was forgiven and loved by you? 
Where in the last day did I remember that and walked in the reality of that and enjoy the fruit of that? And then you say, God, when in in the last day, when over the last 24 hours uh, did I either forget or willfully ignore the fact that I have been made a new creation, that I have been forgiven, that I have been reconciled, that I'm a child of the king? Where did I forfeit that over the last day? And ask God to help you see those things. What did I choose? Why did I choose that? And then you ask for forgiveness. God, would you forgive me for forfeiting that? Would you forgive me for ignoring that or forgetting somehow that I'm a child of of the king? And then this is a critical piece. Ready for this? Then actually receive that forgiveness. Don't don't go, God, forgive me. I promise tomorrow I'm going to do better. Nope. God, would you forgive me and restore me? You've promised to. Then receive that. God, tomorrow, help me to remember in those times. Help me to walk with courage in those times. Help me to remember that, I've been, that I have been transformed and I'm being transformed. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes we get tired of this. Sometimes we wonder if God gets tired of this. Does he get tired of forgiving us? Or sometimes, this takes a little deeper to flesh out. This usually happens. I, I've, been, I've read an article this morning about uh, successful religious guys at 60 years old throwing away everything, wife, family, ministry, all of that stuff, and just uh, running off to Mexico, I, I don't know, doing something um, dumb. And, and what they found in the consistency is they remained faithful all this time, and where's the payoff? If Jesus isn't a good enough payoff, nothing will be. So that may take longer to uncover. God, I did everything you told me to do, right? You know who else said that? It's the older brother. So some of us may think, all right, how much longer do I have to do this before I get better? Or you may wonder, does God ever get tired? Does he get tired? I'm always having to ask for forgiveness. I'm always needing him. And let me remind you of this truth. The goal of the Christian life is never to need Jesus less. We always, we don't get to a point, you know, remember when Peter walked on the water? You don't ever get to the point, as soon as he looked away from Jesus, he went down. You will never get to a point where you're like, you have your reading plan and your doctrine and all these things in place enough, you got enough momentum that you can look away from Jesus for a while and stay pretty close to the surface. Right? We, the goal is never to need Jesus less. We need Jesus completely. Maturity is needing him more and seeing how we need him more. I want to finish. I want to read this quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton that a friend reminded me of this week. And I absolutely love it. The idea that does God get tired of forgiving us over and over and over and over? Does he get tired of us coming to him over and over and over? I'm going to read this quote and then we're going to pray. This is what he said. He said, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until they're they're nearly dead. For grown-up people, 
are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. Is it possible that God says every morning to the sun, do it again? And every evening to the moon, do it again? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, and he's never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. We have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Let's pray. God, this path is impossible for us. It's impossible for us. And if we think somehow we can walk the path of life on our own, we are walking the path of destruction. But also our sinful nature. We want to see like, yeah, but I can, give me, just give me a little hand here and then, and then I got it from here. You have provided not only the gate, but the entire Every step of the way. The problem is when we, when we don't think we need you. So make us a dependent people. Take away from us even the religious activities that we do to avoid needing you as Savior. May we become more dependent on you. May our sin, pride, arrogance, shame, fear, may, they, may that not lead us away from you. May it actually, would you in your grace expose that so that we can see how badly we need you. May we encourage one another with those. May we remind one another. May we be the community of believers that is quick to remind each other how much we need Jesus and how good and gracious you are. You never tire. Do it again. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.